0: Was a young Ukrainian singer composer by the name of Jacqueline, spelled J K L N. She lives in Germany right now, and there she was with her recent release, "Welcome to Ukraine." radio mm-hmm. Dobli Vachud and welcome to Nash Holos Ukrainian Roots Radio here on AM 1320 CHMB Vancouver. I'm your host, Pavlina. Well, today marks a very sad anniversary for Ukraine. It marks two years of absolute hell being rained on them. Revenge and rage, perhaps, for being so successful in such a short period of time. So today's program will reflect on the incredible bravery, endurance, and determination of the Ukrainian people. So today we've got an interview with a man that I met in Ukraine 2015 through Ukraine War Amps, who has been working as a civilian paramedic at the front. So we can get some insight from him that um, we can't from military personnel who are not allowed to speak to media. And Nick will give us a really good picture of what life is like for ordinary people who just want to help out and do what they can with what they have. And Olena Skorokhod will join us with News from Ukraine, coming to us courtesy the Kiev Independent, Ukraine's largest and fastest-growing English-language news outlet. As well, a proverb of the week, other items of interest, and great Ukrainian music. And up next, a brand new release by talented Toronto singer, composer, and musician Nastasia Y. She performs unique renditions of Ukrainian folk songs and also her own compositions. Here is her latest, and I'll let her introduce it in her own words.
1: I want to take you to the Black Sea, to Crimea, a place where I spent a lot of my summers as a kid growing up in Ukraine. It's the home of the Crimean Tatar people, who are the indigenous people of Crimea. Unfortunately, it's also the place where the war in Ukraine began with the occupation of Crimea, which started exactly 10 years ago. This is a repetition of generational trauma of ethnic cleansing in the region because in 1944, Stalin forcibly deported nearly all Tatar people from their land, erasing schools, mosques, libraries, burning books, renaming streets, and settling on the land. Unfortunately, history repeats itself, and these things are happening throughout occupied regions all over Ukraine, now as we enter the third year of the full-scale war. In Crimea, the Tatar people face repressions for speaking out, quite literally, as the language is considered to be an endangered language. But there is one thing that music can do, which is give a voice to those who don't have one right now. So here's a bold reimagining of a traditional wedding song from Karim, created with my band in Toronto, where I live, sung in the Crimean Tatar language.
2: So now, like all the silver boxes, delay,
3: Thanks to the foresight and generosity of its donors, the Shurchenko Foundation has been investing in the future of the Ukrainian-Canadian community for the past 60 years. Since 1963, the Shochenko Foundation has been funding initiatives that strengthen our Ukrainian-Canadian identity and enhance our Ukrainian-Canadian cultural heritage. These include fine and performing artists and arts groups, museums, cultural centres, education, as well as authors, journalists, and the Ukrainian-Canadian media, including this program. The foundation strives to become the premier not-for-profit foundation in a Canada which acknowledges the Ukrainian Canadian community as a fundamental component of Canadian society. Nash Nasholos listeners are encouraged to support this vision through continued donations into the future. To apply for grants, make a donation, or for more information, visit www.shochenikofoundation.ca.
0: In 2015, on a trip to Ukraine, I met a remarkable man named Nick Budoratsky. He was my guide and interpreter on a visit to a military hospital in Kiev, where a soldier wounded in the Donetsk airport siege was recovering. I learned of the soldier, Vadim Dolgoruk, and was connected with Nick through Jean Bedezovsky of Ukraine War Amps in Toronto. I had made a small donation through UWA towards Vadim's recovery. And when I contacted Nick, he invited me to visit Vadim. I made a video of that visit. You can find it on the Holos YouTube channel. It was a little over a year after Russia's first invasion of Ukraine, and Nick was one of many Ukrainian citizens who became volunteers to fight the aggressors in any way they could. On that trip, Nick also introduced me to Tyra, a Ukrainian medic who testified before a U.S. Congress after her release from Russian captivity last year. I kept tabs on Nick through Ukraine War Amps on Facebook, but recently reached out to chat with him about his work since our meeting in Kiev almost nine years ago. The true life stories he shared with me made my head spin, but were just part of life for him. His stories are as close a glimpse of the frontline reality as you can get without speaking to military personnel who generally are not permitted to speak with media. Nick joined me online from his home in Kiev. So, Nick, you have a regular civilian job, um, but you're not just still a volunteer uh, helping out the military anymore.
4: No, I was a volunteer the last time you saw me in person. But now it's different. Somewhere around 2017, I started to be a military paramedic. Right. After which, uh, you know, you you heard about Tyra.
0: She got captured, yeah.
4: Yeah. She was the person that took me in the squad. And I was a driver at first, and eventually I became a paramedic. So since 2017, I was not only a volunteer. I was a paramedic also.
0: And you said was. You're not anymore.
4: Well, I kind of still am. But after what happened in Irpin, I don't have a lot of health left. I was kind of um, canceled from the military, but I'm still teaching soldiers on the field.
0: What happened in Irpin?
4: I'm not sure if I can translate the medical terms okay, but it's a compression trauma in my lower back, and I have a damaged
0: hip. How did that happen?
4: It happened 2016 in Avdeivka, when I fell down from three meters high with my bulletproof. That was 13 kilograms, and all the instruments on it and stuff. So I fell down, damaged my back and my hip, and I wouldn't say that's a full-scale concussion, but the shockwave got me. So since then, I was not taking care of it really good. oh So when the full-scale invasion happened, I was responsible for evacuating injured people. I was the deputy of the head of the hospital that we created ourselves on the as-of-battalion basis. We had a lot of doctors. We had a lot of staff. So it was my turn to go to the European area to evacuate injured. And this is where, you know, a lot of heavy lifting, falling was done. And those injuries came back again.
0: Oh, how did you fall in the first place with that, that heavy uh, equipment on top of you?
4: I was putting some sensors on the height. Mm-hmm. It's for watching the perimeters, blah, blah. It's complicated stuff. It was experimental. And after soldiers said that they were listening what's going on, and they uh, heard that the mine was launched from the other side, they said, see, cover? Apparently, I was doing too fast. The ladder didn't hold me. It broke, and I fell. Oh. And if I were not wearing my helmet and bulletproof, I would be okay. It would be much better because I didn't have so much weight when I fell down, and I could get up quicker because, again, there's no weight on me, so I can uh, hide behind the wall and not get this shockwave. So this is my trauma, and I didn't manage it. I was not taking it too seriously, so this is how it got back to me again.
0: Oh, so it was a few years then of it just being misaligned and... Abused, I guess, because it wasn't properly taken care. Well, of. I,
4: I was kind of treating it, but didn't really took it that serious. I had places to go, I had my responsibilities again, the, sure. the rotations as a paramedic and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I can, I really needed to find a job because uh, I'm not eating air. So,
2: <laughs> <laughs>
4: so I was working. I'm really lucky that I managed to find a remote work so I can work. I could be a paramedic at the same time. No one was pushing me. So I was managing both responsibilities. But it,
0: it caught up to you. Yeah. Mm. You, so what is your civilian job?
4: I work for the German company. That's a really big international company. And I was working until a new year as a help desk agent, um, IT help desk agent. But right before the uh, new year, there was a lot of layoffs, and I was in the second wave of layoffs. So instead of firing me, another department of this company said, well, what are you doing, guys? You're just throwing away qualified people. and." We need three more people in our department where are understaffed, so given to us.
0: Oh, good. So, that.
4: it's basically not what I was wanting to do, but it's still a job. Hmm. Uh, it's a different area. I started to learn, so it will take me some time to adjust.
0: So, basically, it's IT.
4: Yeah, I'm still in IT. Oh. And uh, something tells me that I'm going to lose this job. Why? Um, the place where, where I serve as a non-civil, it's not actual anymore.
0: That's, the work that you're doing as a medic or training soldiers and stuff?
4: Yeah, training training soldiers, yes. So there is a possibility that I'm going to be transferred. And if I get transferred, I will not be half-civil anymore. Oh. I will be a full-time military Oh in this case I'm gonna lose this job but there's still some chances that I will be half civil but if it happens I'm not civil anymore Oh but actually I don't have enough information at this moment myself so I'm not sure what's it gonna be but it's gonna be something that I can handle I'm sure that I can.
0: So are you are you gone is the pain all gone your your hip and, and back pain or is you still dealing with it?
4: Well, actually, it got better. I've got some injections. It got much better. I avoid a lot of, you know, lifting stuff, running, walking too much. Mm. You know, it's much better now, really better. But it was, it was so painful. Uh, now it's better because uh, I'm not heavy lifting. You know, all I need when, when I train soldiers, I don't need to lift something up too much. And my work is remote so I don't have to commute a lot. I'm mostly driving, so no walking.
0: That's okay. My heart breaks for you. <laughs> That's I could, okay. I wish I could do something. I wish I could be there with you, helping you. But you're ever the optimist. And about all I can do is uh, tell your tell your story. I made that video from our trip there, <laughs> from my trip to, to Ukraine, when you took me to that hospital. And, and we met Vadim um, Dolgoruk, you still in touch with him?
4: You know the full story about him? No, I don't. Tell me. When I saw this guy first time, he asked for something. I cannot really recall what it is. This was the first time I met him in the hospital. And I was struggling to come into the room. I had no idea how to behave because, well, it was, was before all my paramedic stuff. So I was only a beginner. And I didn't know how to behave. And one day he he told me, "Uh, you don't have to concentrate on what happened to me because I know myself. And trust me, I will drive a car and I will get married and I will have children.
2: Oh, wow.
4: You know what? Two years after this conversation, he drives a car, he married and has kids. Wow! This person is so strong. Wow! So even if he has no limbs, not all of the limbs. I'm sorry, not all of them. He's got one left,
0: right? He had. He was three. Lost three limbs.
4: Yeah, um, it doesn't affect him. The person is so strong. It's like it never happened to him. He drives a car. He's married and has kids, uh, just as he said.
0: So two years of rehab, and he he is living a normal life again. Yes, that's amazing. It is a really strong person. Yeah. You started then in about 2014. We met in 2015, and you were a beginner, you said. And by 2017, you were training as a medic. What happened in those years between, from 15 and 17?
4: I uh, discovered that my projects that I was doing as a volunteer, they are kind of good, but I wasn't sure how efficient they were. So eventually I decided to go at the front line to see the efficiency with my own eyes. And I discovered that it was not not good. It was helpful, but it was not enough. So I concentrated on something that uh, the soldiers need the most, something specific, something that I am capable to do. And closer to September 2016, after I got a little better with my trauma, I found a guy that was trying to do a special optical system, electronic optical system. And in the first glance, I was not sure if it's even needed, but one of the commanders asked me to buy one, and I bought one.
0: So what is it?
4: It's a camera with the control unit that no devices can um, find it. Oh, and it was really useful to look for snipers. It was really useful to correcting the artillery. Fantastic, up to two and a half thousand meters. Thanks God, Canada uses net system. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to convert it. And it was working up to four kilometers for watching what's going on. So it was keeping you safe because it was working on a distance. So uh, if something hit the camera. You're far away from it. Right. It's ultra-portable, and actually, I am the one who is responsible that those cameras are vanished from United States uh, youth market. I bought all of them that was selling in the U.S. Oh my I goodness. bought all of them.
0: Oh, my goodness.
4: That was Catherine, Nicole, and, you know, those ladies supported me with
0: those cameras a lot. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Yes, Catherine, Olga Cook has been a huge supporter of the Ukraine War Amps Adopt-a-Soldier and Visit a Soldier programs and definitely of your work and of Nasholus as well. She provided us with a few stories of some great defenders of Ukraine that Ukraine War Amps supported. So you got this optical device that you had modified and dispatched, I guess, amongst uh, soldiers, where where were they being used and accomplishing what?
4: Absolutely everything they can imagine doing with it. It's ultra portable. It's only two cases: one case with the display and the control panel; second case is the batteries. Some of them are used for artillery. Some of them are used for looking for snipers and stuff. Okay, it is. It is ultra portable. It's autonomous. It can work up to 10 hours when it's uh, warm weather, up to five, six hours when it's cold. So you can use it absolutely anywhere you want. And if something bad happens, all you need to do is just grab the camera and run. You can leave the batteries. You can leave the control panel. All you needed to do is just take the camera away. So if something goes wrong, it will not work against you. So we will train soldiers how to use it and how to act if it's gone too bad. All we need to do is just take the camera and run if something goes wrong. Okay, so let's imagine a situation when you're in a trench and you're trying to observe what's going on. And you need to rise above the trench with the binoculars, my I will get you. Um, right. There is a periscope that you can use to look what ha- what's happening. But all of the snipers know that this periscope is like 20 centimeters long. So all the snipers have to do is just send the bullet 20 centimeters lower, and it will get you. This device was working, it depends on the charge of battery, but it could work up to 70 meters. So the snipers will not know where you are.
0: Oh, awesome.
4: And the camera itself was really small and compact, and it was really complicated to see. You could hide it. You can cover it with something. And they can move any directions, up, down, uh, sideways. So you can control it.
1: Wow.
0: So why did did it stop? What happened in 21
4: that that changed? Well... uh, I didn't have enough money. Uh, it's embarrassing to say, but I was really tired.
0: That's not embarrassing. You're embarrassing. human. I was, You're
4: human. Yeah, I I know. I thought that I made of steel, but no, I made of meat. So, yeah, mm. I got tired. Sure.
0: I'm speaking with Nick Budoratsky in Ukraine, who I met in Kiev in 2015 when he was helping out as a volunteer at the front. We'll take a station break now after a musical interlude, but we'll continue our chat in the second half of the program to find out more about Nick's work at the front lines and some harrowing personal experiences in this infernal war. Up next is a song that was released two years ago at the outbreak of war by Bono, one of many famous artists releasing songs supporting Ukraine. Unfortunately, that didn't continue, but Bono recently called on the free world and the United States in particular to ramp up its support of Ukraine at a concert in Las Vegas. Here's his recording from 2022.
5: Taras Shevchenko's My Friendly Epistle To the dead, the living, and those yet unborn my countrymen and all who live in Ukraine and outside Ukraine. If a man say I love God and hate his brother, he's a liar. 1 John 4. Here we are now. Day dawns, then comes the twilight gray, the limit of the live-long day. For weary people sleep seems best And all God's creatures go to rest I only grieve like one accursed Through all the hours, both last and first Sad at the crossroads, day and night With no one there to see my plight No one can see me, no one knows me All men are deaf, no ears disclose me Men stand and trade their mutual chains and barter truth for filthy gains, committing shame against the Lord by harnessing for black reward. People in yokes and sowing evil and fields commissioned by the devil. And what will sprout, you soon will see, what kind of harvest there will be. Come to your senses, ruthless ones. Oh, stupid children, folly sons, and bring that peace-filled paradise your own Ukraine before your eyes. Then let your heart in love sincere embrace her mighty ruin here. Break then your chains and love unite, not seek in foreign lands the sight of things not even found with God above still less in land that strangers love then in your own house you will see true justice strength and liberty and in your own house you will see true justice strength and liberty
0: You're listening to Holos Ukrainian Roots Radio. I'm Pavlina. Back to our chat with Nick Buduratsky, a paramedic working on Ukraine's front lines. We left off with him starting to tell us about running out of steam and money after doing some fascinating work repurposing old cameras from North America to keep Ukrainian soldiers in the trenches safe. In this second half of our chat, he describes his experiences working as a civilian paramedic during the Irpin Massacre and what the future holds for him and his country. So why did did it stop? What happened in 21 that that changed?
4: Well, I didn't have enough money. Uh, It's embarrassing to say, but I was really tired.
0: That's not embarrassing. embarrassing. You're human.
4: I was, You're human. Yeah, I am I know. I thought that I made of steel but no I made of meat. So, yeah, mm. I got tired.
1: Sure.
4: I got tired psychologically because in 2019 uh, we broke up uh, with my partner, so I was exhausted exhausted physically, I was kind of depressed.
2: Sure. I had
4: no money to buy those cameras. Uh, control panels, displays, batteries, and there was not too much demand for these devices anymore. We provided some alternative. Those alternatives was a little cheaper, not that universal, but cheaper, and guys still use them. So the last system I took to the front was in early 2021. There was no information about what's going to happen the first thing, information started to came in uh fall winter of 2021 about the russians attempting to make a full-scale invasion and the last time i was with the, those squad that i supported the technical devices was february 10th of 2022 and there was a lot of information about what russians are going to do and I asked this guy, a super, extremely cool military guy, the best I have ever met. And uh, I asked him, what do you think about all those Russians getting close to the front line? He said, whatever happens, you know what can you do. You know that you are capable of. And what, didn't you solve the war before? Is there going to be something new to you? And at that moment, I realized that he knows that it's going to happen. So in 12 days, oh, not in 12, in 14 days, it did happen. I was in Kiev this time. I started the new job at this German company. So I was working in this German company, but on the weekends, uh, I jumped in the car. Like Friday night, (laughs) I jumped in the car and went in Donbass region to, to take the devices. Different devices, not that I produced, because the last model was sent in 2021. I spent my weekends on the front line and was back home a couple of hours before my job started. Oh. And, and, and and you had is,
0: and you had back pain and everything. Oh man.
4: Oh yes, oh yeah. So this is how I spend my weekends and um, oh. returning back in a couple of hours before my job starts and was working all week. And then uh, I jump in the car again, and <laughs> it's never-ending story.
0: And you're telling me you're not made of steel.
4: No, I'm not. Wow. I'm not.
0: Wow. That's amazing. So you said you were working by part-time. You, on the weekends, you would go to Donbass and do deliveries.
4: Uh, well, when the full-scale invasion uh, started, I was kind of prepared, but, you know, this kind of, I got my military car. I've got my medical supplies, you know, for the stabilization, rescue. And I joined a group of guys that I knew, like, for a lot of years. And we were thinking, what are we going to do? And absolutely by accident, we stopped at a checkpoint of Azov squad. And one of those guys came out and said, who are you guys? And uh, there was five of us in two cars. One of the cars had a lot of Molotov cocktails in them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was stinking so much you cannot breathe in this car. It was horrible. What? What is?
0: So, uh, what, what are the fumes? I don't. I mean, I don't know what's exactly in a Molotov cocktail. I know what it is, but is it a gasoline it's or gasoline.
4: It's oil, engine oil, something else. I was not the one who was doing it. But when we were stopped at this checkpoint, we had two cars. As of guys said, Who are you guys? We said, oh, We are paramedics and we are trying to figure out where are we going to be useful. And the guy said, You are what? Paramedics? Um, we need you. So, beginning from this moment, they took us in to their Azov squad. They gave five of us a room where we could do some procedures, after which we used the social network to ask if there's some doctors available. So in the first four days, we ran from five people to 36. Oh, wow. And after two weeks, we had 60 plus people. Wow. Yeah, and I was deputy of this hospital. They um, provided a part of the real hospital to us, so we had two floors that we were using as a hospital. So uh, at this point, we started to evacuate injured people from Irpin, and we had a lot of doctors, like beginning from the here said, nose, throat, ears.
0: But ear, nose, throat doctor.
4: Yes up to surgeons. Oh, wow. We had almost all kinds of doctors. We had even American surgeons.
0: Wow.
4: He came from United States. We had another guy. Oh my gosh, this one was made of steel. He was at irping every single day with no brakes. He was carrying injured people all over the places. He was so strong. His name is Dwight. He is from uh, California. We had guys from Sweden, two paramedics from Sweden. Oh, my God. There was so much foreigners in the same place when it all happened. We couldn't even imagine that we will get so much guys from other countries oh, helping us. Yeah. yeah, it was fantastic. We had a lot of doctors. We have administrative uh, the reception. We had... Uh, people that were cooking for all those 60-plus people. Oh, my God, it was a mechanism so efficient and so advanced and so cool. I could not believe that we did all of this like in only two weeks. And it was really hard to manage all of those personnel, all of those incomes, of uh, the medicine, the, the materials, or something. It was really hard managing all of it. So I kind of uh, was switching and going to to uh, evacuate people because it was so much pressure that I was just like switching shift with other guys to manage all of this because it was too intense.
0: You were doing that full time? Yeah.
4: yeah. This is, I am so happy that my coworkers in Germany. They saw what's going on. They said, okay, we see what's going on. You can go, but we will fire you if you die. (laughs) (laughs) So the guys in Germany were waiting for me for almost four months. Really? Yes, until I get back and started to work again. They waited for me, asking how I am all the time. Oh my God, it was a dream team. I love them so much. They're such a cool guys. Unfortunately, there was layoffs. I'm not with them anymore, but they are such a fantastic people. I love them. So they waited for me. I was still using my weekends to train soldiers. Not every weekend, but still a lot of work. There's still two people like me that they can... Uh, when I'm out, they're doing my job. There's so two guys that was also in this kind of activity. So, yeah, I, uh, I'm working in this for two years already.
0: Yeah, <laughs> wow. So what did your work as a medic involve?
4: I was managing uh, the deliveries and medical personnel when, I, when, when Russians were around the Kiev. I was also doing the evacuations. But after uh, they were kicked out, I stopped to manage this hospital because there was no need anymore. So I concentrated to teach soldiers to stop critical bleedings, um, heart lung reanimations, and other stuff that they will need in the field not to bleed to death, you know. So since then, I just teach soldiers uh, how to stabilize themselves, not to bleed. Sometimes I get soldiers with medical education. I was teaching them a uh, 3 tactic combat casualty care program. Uh, but there was no much of them, so I was teaching basics.
0: Mm-hmm. And so now you're you've got a civilian job, and you do paramedic stuff on the weekends. Yeah. So you're right now just waiting for your orders? Yeah. Yeah,
4: yeah. yeah I'm waiting for the result. There's some communication going on higher up above, so I just sit and wait what's going to be next. Will I be half-civil? Will I be civil? Will I be military? I have no idea. But there's a big big chance that I'm not going to be a half civil anymore because, you know, a lot of people get enrolled today, so oh, there's no chance I'm going to stay civil. No way. Wow. I want to be a civil, but I, yeah. I I, do know that it's kind of really not possible at this moment.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, How is Tyra?
4: She's doing a lot of work internationally, presenting the situation that's going on in Ukraine in different countries travels a lot. She's okay, but I couldn't catch her because as soon as we agreed that I will visit her, she's off somewhere in the different countries, oh boy, you know, testifying, mm-hmm. uh, doing international work. So I cannot catch her. Aww. She's always busy, <laughs> but she's fine, she's fine. Yeah, that's good. She's fine.
0: Yeah, how long was she in captivity? How long did they hold her?
4: Somewhere around half a year, a little bit more than half a year.
0: How was she when she was released?
4: She's a really strong person, actually. Yeah. yeah. She, I cannot be sure how she feels now, at this moment, but she's a strong person, trust me. Really strong person. So I'm not sure if there's any changes.
0: Well, hopefully she gave her captors a hard time.
4: Oh, yeah, she, she did. Trust me, she did. She's quite a character. And, yeah, if she wants to give some hard time to anyone, oh, trust me, she will do it the best way possible. <laughs> <laughs> She's strong. She's really strong. And um, my cousin was in the captivity also. He was exchanged in the middle of 2023. You cannot imagine how happy I was.
0: Oh, my God, your cousin. Yeah,
4: yeah, but he's here now. He's okay, treated well, so I'm kind of, you know, I'm kind of stable now.
0: Wow. Well, will you be able to keep in touch with me? Sure. Yeah? No problem. Okay. And um,
4: sometimes it it's going to take me more because I need to drive 80 plus kilometers back home because I was on the field, we call it Polygon.
0: Yeah, you mentioned I'm not that. Sure right. how, yeah, Polygon, you yeah. said, yeah.
4: Because English speaking people does not know what it is. I don't. It's a field when uh, when soldiers train, so for some reason we call it Polygon.
0: You're So where are you? You're right in Kiev? Left bank
4: of Kiev. Right bank is high above. It's higher because it's a uh, Kind of
0: mountains So we're talking the right bank, left bank of and the Dnipro is in the middle, right?
4: Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh-huh. Dnipro is in the middle so, and I live on the left bank of Kiev.
0: Okay. The left bank then is towards the east or west.
4: The center uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a dangerous place. <laughs> but no no the right bank was affected much more, much more. Because the central part, the government part, is on the right bank. The place that we met first time, it was a right bank. The, the left bank is, if you move towards the front line, yeah, it's a left bank. Uh, left bank is not really something special. Yeah. If we're talking about Eve, it's not something special that you can bump a lot. There's really much more things to bomb on the right bank. So mm-hmm. the right bank gets more, more of the luck. Right. Oh, so much more. Mm. Yeah, there was some massive explosions in front of my home. <laughs> oh, can mm. you imagine waking up no. like this? <laughs> mm. I, even, I even got a... That mm. window was asking to be changed for a lot of years, but I was like,
2: ah,
4: I'll do it later, I'll do it later, I'll go it later. Wham, here you go. It shuttered so this is when I decided, okay, I will change it now. <laughs> so the, and I did. And it's, the room is much warmer now because of that new window.
0: Wow. <laughs> Nick, uh, uh, Yeah. so good to see you. Stay, stay well, stay safe. I'm, I will. I know I, don't, I will. You'll stay strong. I know you are made of steel, though you think you're not and uh, <laughs> and you are a sweetheart uh, Thank you. I hope, hope to see you again soon I was speaking with Nick Budoratsky in Kiev who works part-time at the front as a civilian paramedic at the moment if you'd like to support Nick and other defenders of Ukraine please consider making a donation to Ukraine War Amps you can find them on social media and there will be a link in the podcast show notes of this episode And now the latest news from Ukraine, courtesy the Kiev Independent, Ukraine's largest and fastest-growing English-language news organization.
6: On February 20th, Russian drones struck a civilian vehicle in Kupiansk district of Kharkiv Oblast, instantly killing two of the passengers and injuring the third. All three were farm workers returning home from work. That same day, a Russian attack against the Novosloboda community in Sumy Oblast caused a fire in the residential building killing an entire family – a mother and her two sons, as well as the grandmother and a friend. A Russian missile attack on Kramatorsk in Donetsk Oblast injured at least three people and damaged an industrial area and a residential building. The city's water supply may be interrupted in the aftermath of the attack. In Dnipropetrovsk Oblast, Russian forces struck the Nikopol district, wounding three residents. Nikopol is a regular target of Russian attacks. It is situated on the banks of the dried-up Kahovko reservoir, just across from the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Nikopol deputy mayor Vitaliy Zhuravlov was shot to death in his car on Nikopol Street on February 8. On February 12, police detained a suspect, planning to commit similar crimes against other officials in Nikopol. Law enforcement are investigating the alleged shooting. Of three Ukrainian prisoners of war by Russian troops on February 18 near Robotyne in Zaporizhzhia Oblast, the Prosecutor General's Office said the Prosecutor General's Office said it will investigate those involved for potentially having violated the laws and customs of war and for murder. Reports of Ukrainian prisoners of war being tortured or killed while in Russian custody have surfaced since the start of Russia's full-scale war against Ukraine. Ukraine's military reported that Russian troops also killed two Ukrainian prisoners of war in Donetsk Oblast on February 18th. And on February 19th, the Russian military promised to evacuate five wounded Ukrainian soldiers in Avdiivka, but instead shot and killed them. The Security Service of Ukraine detained a Kharkiv resident who was allegedly aiding Russian attacks on the city's civilian infrastructure, including a January 23rd strike that injured nine people. The strike damaged houses, an educational institution and a post office. The suspended informant is a 34-year-old woman from Kharkiv who Russia recruited early this year. She allegedly provided Russia with information on the most densely populated areas of the city, and geolocations of buildings that she thought could be used by Ukrainian forces. She also secretly recorded the movement of Ukrainian military units toward the front line and remotely transmitted the information to Russian intelligence in exchange for a monetary award. The woman was charged with high treason committed under martial law. If convicted, she may face life imprisonment. As February 21st, Ukraine has launched over 16,000 criminal cases Over crimes against national security, including 3,106 over high treason, according to the Prosecutor General's Office. Ukrainian troops launched two HIMARS missiles against a Russian military training ground in occupied areas of Donetsk Oblast Volnovakha district, where Russian troops were stationed, killing at least 60, the BBC reported on February 21. The attack took place on February twentieth near the village Trudivske, where units of the 36th Guards Motorized Rifle Brigade commonly stationed in Russia's Far East. Were deployed. The news outlet said it had obtained more than 10 photographs and videos taken after the strike, showing dozens of dead, but did not publish them. A spokesperson for the Odessa military administration also shared the claims on Telegram. Russia has lost over 400,000 troops in Ukraine since February 24, 2022. The general staff of Ukraine's armed forces reported on February 21. This number includes 1,130 casualties Russian forces suffered just in one day. According to the report, Russia has also lost 6,516 tanks, 12,338 armored fighting vehicles, 12,861 vehicles and fuel tanks, 9,826 artillery systems, 992 multiple launch rocket systems, 678 air defense systems, 338 airplanes, 325 helicopters, 7,560 drones, and 25 warships and boats. Ultranationalist Russian military blogger Andrei Morozov reportedly died by suicide days after posting claims that Russia suffered massive personal losses in Avdiivka. Morozov, who wrote under the pseudonym Moors on Telegram, was a programming commentator who participated in Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. He sparked outrage among pro-Russian outlets when he claimed on February 18th that the Russian military lost 16,000 soldiers and 300 armored vehicles in its assault on Avdiivka. Morozov's reports of heavy losses drew intense criticism in pro-Russian circles, and he deleted the post. He claimed he was ordered to take the post down by someone known as Comrade-Colonel In his final posts, he wrote about his intention to take his own life. Moscow has begun cracking down on right-wing commentators who criticize Russian leaders handling of the war against Ukraine. The Kremlin hides the true number of casualties incurred by its invasion of Ukraine. A letter signed by international legal experts argues that the seizure of frozen Russian central bank assets to aid Ukraine would be lawful given Russia's ongoing breach of the most fundamental rules of international law. Bloomberg reported on February twenty first. Western countries and other partners immobilized around $300 billion of the Russian central bank's assets at the start of the full-scale invasion. According to the World Bank, the estimated cost of Ukraine's post-war recovery and reconstruction has risen to $486 billion. The letter was signed by 10 legal experts from the U.S., the U.K., Belgium, France, Germany, Japan, and the Netherlands. G7 nations have pledged that Russian assets held in their jurisdictions would remain frozen until Moscow pays war reparations to Ukraine. Foreign Minister Dmitro Kuleba said in January that the frozen Russian assets could fund more than 80% of Ukraine's recovery. The EU has been hesitant to confiscate Russian assets outright, fearing legal pitfalls and possible retribution by Russia, but has made steps to target the profits generated by frozen Russian central bank assets. The European Council agreed on February 12 to a set of new measures targeting these profits, possibly paving the way. For the revenue to be eventually redirected to Ukraine. Almost 70% of Ukrainians think that President Volodymyr Zelensky should remain in office for the duration of martial law and elections should be postponed until it is lifted, according to a survey released on February 20th by the Kyiv International Institute of Sociology. As Zelensky's five year term will end in May 2024, There has been considered debate about holding presidential elections. Under Ukraine's constitution elections are prohibited when the country is under martial law. Zelensky first declared martial law and generated mobilization on February 24, 2022, when Russia started its full-scale invasion of Ukraine. The measure has been repeatedly extended since then. Zelensky said in December 2023 that he was willing to proceed with the election as scheduled, but believed that most Ukrainians think such a vote would be dangerous and meaningless in wartime. Polling has consistently found that a majority of Ukrainians believe elections should only be held after the war is over. Only 15% of respondents believe a presidential election should go forward. When asked if Zelensky should run for another term if elections are held, 53% of respondents said yes a 6% decrease since December 2023. Ukrainian officials have said that their logistical and security challenges involved in holding free and fair elections during wartime. Millions of voters live abroad or in territories currently occupied by Russia. I am Olena Skorohod in Vancouver, reporting for Nash Hall's Ukrainian Roots Radio.
0: And that's the news from Ukraine for today. Coming to you courtesy the Kiev Independent, Ukraine's largest and fastest-growing English-language news organization. For more up-to-date news stories as they happen, visit their website, kvindependent.com, and make sure to follow them on social media. To allow this independent Ukrainian news team to continue delivering you news from on the ground in Ukraine, please consider becoming a member at kfindependent.com. Moháte jít vyslouchtejte radioprogramu Náš Holos Radio, nášho Hokurinya, nebo hato mluvni radiostanci AM 112 CHMB v městě Vancouveri. Nejsem jistý, jestli chlapi našeho programu vždy často domů jsou zazate dopačený, ale předtím tyhle slova mě můdrosti. Ne moles za toho, že viděl užití za vora ha tvoho. And our proverb of the week translates as Don't pray for him who gave his life for your enemy. Certainly very understandable sentiment for Ukrainians, especially today. Well, that brings us to the end of another edition of Holos Ukrainian Roots Radio here on AM 1320 CHMB, Vancouver. If you missed any of our on-air or live stream broadcasts, you can catch the podcast at our website, www.nashholos.com And you can also get transcripts, audio archives, and a link to our podcast there. And also check out our YouTube channel, featuring fascinating interviews with Anton Lysenko of Victoria, www.nashholos.com. And of course, you can also find the Nashholos podcast on your favorite podcast app. Well, our time is up, so we'll wrap things up with the Choir of the Academic Ensemble of the Border Guard Service of Ukraine and Suchei Dube. I'm Pavina, on behalf of Olena, myself, and all of us here at Nashholos and AM 1320. Thanks for listening, and Dobranich. Slavo Krini
5: i <laughs> a